You're listening to Shifting Schools, episode 238. Welcome back to the Shifting Schools podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman. I am here with Jeff, who you all know and have been listening to for years and years. How are you doing, Jeff? Good, Trisha. I'm excited about uh, today's episode. We just got done uh, talking with Aaron Reese. He's a freelance researcher, journalist, and a cartographer based in New York City. He publishes works in places like, I don't know, The New Yorker, The New York Times, The American Life, The Atlantic, NPR, The Pulitzer Center, and so many more. I mean, this guy is an interactive journalist that we get to listen to today and be thinking about where do these these, uh, skills that he talks about, where do they fit in our classroom? And that brings us to today's shift to consider. Trisha, as you listened to this conversation, what's one of the shifts you have that that you're considering and, and want our audience to consider as they listen through this as well? What I'm thinking about, Jeff, is this shift to expecting that students know how to collaborate to giving them so many different opportunities to experience collaboration with an authentic audience. Aaron Reese's work is all about that, working with teams, and he has to do it all the time. So when we're thinking about learning, we're thinking about storytelling, how often do our students get the opportunity to work together on telling a story? Um, We talk a lot, Jeff, about how strongly we feel that, you know, co-producing a podcast is an amazing learning experience for students. If you are thinking, okay, I would love to do this. I'd love to do an interdisciplinary unit, perhaps with other teachers, with other classes where our students are working together to produce a podcast and you don't know how to get started. We have a course that's available. This is Getting Started with Podcasting. Uh, Perhaps this is a great course for you to check out, thinking about launching the new year, the next term. With that in mind, the link to that course will be available for you in the show notes. Awesome. And uh, remember, you can get all of that over at shiftingschools.com. You can find it there under the on offer page. As you reflect on today's conversation, what are three things uh, and, and I'll help with this too. What are some? What are three things for uh, for our audience to listen for in today's episode? What What are some things that are on your mind that you think are key moments in today's conversation? For me, the first one is what Aaron shares um, about you know when he is a creator, he has to ask himself the question: What's the medium that makes the most sense for this story? Mm. And our students have access to tools that go beyond you know just pen to paper, that go beyond just a slideshow. And thinking about how some of those mediums, what might it mean if we mix them together? Um, If we think about blending in audio with artwork, with video, um, and really just stopping and thinking, what's the best way to tell this story and to consider a whole range of options before settling in on just one? Yeah. And one of the things that stuck out for me, and I'd like uh, listeners to kind of focus in on here, is this idea that he talks a lot about all of the tools that it takes to build these these interactive maps that he works on. And he really starts to talk about it. Don't spend time learning the tools because the tools change so fast, but spend time learning how to learn. (laughs) And I think that is such a critical piece. You know, in education, we're constantly talking about lifelong learning. And so be listening for that in today's episode, this idea of where do you hear the ideas of lifelong learning 
as he talks about it in his day-to-day job. I think that's something that really stuck out for me here today as well. And before we get to today's episode, here's a word from today's show sponsors. The premier educational technology conference of the Pacific Northwest is coming back in person in 2023. That's right. NCCE 23 will be held March 21st through 23rd in Tacoma, Washington. Not only can you catch me there doing a few sessions, but we will also be recording a live Shifting Schools episode at the conference on the 23rd. We've done this before, and it's so much fun to sit around and talk about what we learned, our takeaways from the conference, and what's next for each of us. We're excited, and we hope you are too for NCCE 23. Lock in your ticket today at ncce.org, and we'll see you there. And by Quizalize.com. Save 80% from now until December 4th on a yearly Quizalize premium subscription by using promo code SHIFTINGSCHOOLS at checkout. Quizalize, providing teachers with the data they need to make informed decisions. All right, we're excited to bring you our conversation with Aaron Reese, a freelance researcher, journalist, and interactive mapper of all sorts. You're going to love this one. And with that, on with the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of Shifting Schools. Excited to be here along with my co-host, Trisha, and Aaron Reese, uh, who we're going to be talking to, our special guest here today, all about amazing journalism. And Trisha, we've had quite a few different guests on that talks about the changes in journalism. It's going to be great today to get to talk to Aaron as well. That's right, Jeff. We love talking about storytelling and how technology has really allowed the storytellers toolkit um, to evolve and grow in such interesting ways. And Aaron's expertise in interactive journalism. Aaron, I have to tell you, I've been sharing your work with so many different friends, and I feel like I'm getting credit just for pointing some of your stories to them. So so thank you for like giving me that rebound. We would love to start off um, with you talking to the audience about how you came to to work in interactive journalism. And for somebody who has never heard of that concept, what is interactive journalism? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me and for the kind words. I'm definitely blushing. Sadly, you can't see on a <laughs> podcast, but um, I, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, when I started my career, the idea of interactive journalism, I think was a different thing than it is today. Um, a decade ago, you know, I think newsrooms were just really starting to experiment with the idea of a story that wasn't just text plus photos or text plus videos um, or graphs plus text, right? It, it was like a moment where the internet was becoming the main way that people were taking in news stories um, and the sort of like latent possibility of, of that change had yet to become like fully f- fleshed out. And so, um, you know, what I wanted, what I started wanting to do was to make stories that were based on maps. So my background is in urban studies, and I studied how cities are built and designed and how people who live in cities shape the places that they inhabit. And so my initial sort of like step into journalism was, you know, I want to talk about cities and how people live in cities. And the way I know how to do that is through maps and maps that have Mm. stories, um, maps that explore space and hold narrative. And so that's kind of where I started. But as I was starting my career, there were all of these, the the ability to make things on the internet that you could click and that could change, that could play audio, that could change shape, that could um, send you to a new place, that 
the process of creating those things was becoming much more democratized. Whereas it used to be like something where only the experts who knew how to code things from scratch could create these amazing things that could change on the internet. Now these like tool sets and libraries and tutorials were becoming much more popular, much more accessible. And so around the time that I started making these map stories, I also started getting into like, oh, these maps don't have to be static things for the page. They can be things that you can interact with, touch, click, Mm. change. And so, you know, it happened by accident that I arrived in what we'd call like interactive journalism, kind of like through the back door of maps. But, you know, now interactive journalism is more about really immersing people in a story through many different kinds of media. So, you know, when there are parts of the story that are rich in audio, that you can hear audio, when it's visually rich, that there can be video or text, when when something needs to be a graph that like, you know, uh, words can, can be expressed in a, in a, in a pie chart or a line chart or, or an annotated map, all these different ways of, of sort of like sharing information become just tools to be used in a single immersive story that you explore on the internet. And that's kind of like what I see as interactive journalism, this kind of like multimedia, immersive, multi-approach to stories. Uh, and I love that because Trisha, we've been talking now for, I don't know, years uh, in the education space about the new genre of writing called called mapping stories. Uh, we over here at Shifting Schools are really big. And, and Aaron, I don't know if you know about Google My Maps, but you know you can write basic stories. On, and for kids to get started at young ages to tell mapping stories, how do you add data to a map? How does that tell a story? Uh, you know, with with Google My Maps, you can add video and audio files. Like you can start to build this stuff at a very simple, right? Very simple, but at a very young age because it is a new would you consider this a new genre, this idea of, of story, story mapping or mapping or map stories or whatever? Like, do you have something that you call it or? Yeah, ma- I think, think map stories is a good way to put it. I, I yeah. definitely wouldn't say it's a new genre. I mean, people have been telling stories through maps for as long as people have been making marks on stone or paper. But right. I think like in the last decade or so, the conversation around like telling stories through maps has become much more of a conversation outside of cartographers or experts right. or, or map-based journalists. And it's much more of a thing that I think, you know, everybody, including teachers are, are focusing on. I mean, I, I started my career after college as a teacher and, you know, some of the most exciting projects I do with students was let's map your neighborhood and tell stories about what's happening in your neighborhood yeah. and put it on a map. Right. And like, that instinct of mapping where you are and marking things that are important to you is just, it's so like natural and inherent yeah. human that I think, you know, labeling it as a map story, I think is more of a packaging thing than like a new thing. It's just like, mm. it's kind of like a renewed interest and a renewed acknowledgement of how meaningful this kind of storytelling can be, right? Like it's been yeah. around, but I think people are now like, oh, this is super fun, super meaningful, super accessible way to like share stories that are very local to you and very like based on place. Yeah. And, 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 and to your point, the internet has allowed it to be so much more interactive. Yes. The difference between telling stories and stone versus what we can do now with the internet. And I'd love to dig into a specific example of your work. Uh, and we'll make sure that we pub- we point to this in the show notes. But uh, over at The New Yorker, uh, you did a piece entitled New York's Shadow Transit. Uh, can you kind of walk us through the process that went into publishing that story? And again, we're going to put it in the show notes. If you have not gone over and 
looked at this. It's incredible. Uh, can you kind of maybe talk though about what's the process that went into it? What are some of the skills that go into a project like that? How long does a project like that even take? Yeah, I mean, you'll probably have to hem me in in terms of like which piece of it is most interesting to your <laughs> listeners, just because it's an expansive story. Yeah, of, it's so of big production and publishing and research and all that stuff. I mean, a story like that, I would say, like when I really like put the pedal to the floor and say I'm going to 100% work on this project, it's like a year from like beginning the real research through organizing, writing, building a team, pitching. Uh, you know, prototyping, uh, uh, editing, and then eventually pub, uh, publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of these stories that involve collecting data that isn't available elsewhere, what, what you could call like small data. So rather than like finding a data set online of like the 300 most used subway stations, you know, as yeah. compiled by whatever agency, this is like, I'm going to go on the street and walk every street I can find until I see uh, you know, a van that is this informal transit system. And then I'm going to get into the van, talk to the driver, ride the van wow. from start to finish, then go find the next van through word of mouth. That collection process, it, ta- it can take a long time. So some of my stories, you know, can be years in the making just because like finding the data is, is a long-term project. But, you know, once you have the information and you're like, okay, here's what, so for the example for that New Yorker piece, there are many different uh, neighborhoods in New York City that don't have good transportation networks built into them by the city. Private citizens started buying vans and basically operating them as informal bus networks to connect people from where they live to where they need to go. And so I set out to map all of those those uh, informal bus networks. And you know, uh, once you have that information, you have those, those lines. The process is like, it's really akin to like, if you're familiar at all with like the design thinking process that like- yeah popularized by IDEO, but like the process of being like, okay, I have this thing, the story I want to tell, like, does it want to be a video? Does it want to be an, a, a, you know, an audio piece? Does it want to be a map? What does the map want to do? Like, what am I trying to tell? And so you're like, enter a kind of prototyping phase with a story where you're exploring different ways to tell it using different media. And that prototyping phase is, is super fun, super exploratory, super like filled with, with just like ideas. And after that, it's sort of narrowing in with the help of a team, usually. So an editor, a designer at the newspaper or magazine, and, and they kind of help you hone this idea into like a single approach. And then after that, you're kind of off and running in like full production mode, like, okay, what hmm. kind of code do we need to build? What kind of graphics do we need to create? What kind of visual and audio assets do we need to compile so we can start like building this thing like a Lego tower, basically? I wonder too. That's a, oh, go ahead, John. Go ahead, sorry. Go ahead, Trisha. No, go ahead. Uh, well, I just, um, you know, it, it's interesting. You were talking about your your background, your curiosity around cities and what it means to live in a city. For a story like that one, you're mentioning what does this story want to be? Mm. As the creator, how much control do you have over that versus how much control do you need to let go of uh, to perhaps receive feedback from the team that you're that you're working with? So you seem just very, very curious in this notion of cities. And I wonder, um, do you feel like you can really drive that curiosity or is it that you need to sort of be doing collective, curious, flexible thinking? That's such an interesting question because there really is not a single answer to it. And it actually is Mm. something that occupies a lot of my mental space in my career and also like um, on any given project. So a few answers. 
one answer is as a freelance multimedia journalist, the 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 financial the kind of like finances or logistics of that work often involves like pulling one lever that like makes another lever move in the opposite direction. So for example, when I pull the control lever on my project, it usually means the money lever like goes down. If that makes sense, like (laughs) you're often like trading, you know, like I want more control. So I'll take a lower pay or like I want more Mm. pay. So I'll allow less, I'll take less control. And there's many levers, right? There's the control lever. There's the, um, the money lever, there's the prestige lever, there's the size of audience lever. And all of these things are Mm. often working against each other. And so I'm in a constant process of trying to like balance, what do I want and need from this project? However, I can, I am the ultimate deciding factor, right? Like, I have the story, I am pitching it. So if I want complete control over something and I'm working with an editorial team and they're like, well, we want to do X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, well, I don't want to do that. I can walk away from a project and take it to another magazine or newspaper ultimately as the, like the creative, the sort of like the, the source from which the story is coming. I hold that ultimate control, but you know, I'm often deeply uh, committed to getting it in a certain place or working with a certain team. And so I often find myself compromising and I will say like, you know, in nine out of 10 projects, the control that I relinquish because I'm working with such amazing teams at such amazing publications, it often leads me to a place that I never would have gotten on my own. And that mm. is so much better for it. Right. Like I, I, I have confidence in my myself and in my work, but like, I'm just one person. And these teams where you have this amazing designer and this amazing editor, they just push you end the project into places you're not expecting. And so, you know, I think even when I want control, it's usually in my best interest if I trust the team to like let go of some of it and, and take in their sort of instincts and their, their, um, their experience to make, make it something that's more of a, a collective product than just like a singular authoritarian, like, you know, designer in the sky kind of approach. Hey folks, I hope you're enjoying this great conversation with Aaron and there's more to come. But first, I want to remind you of this killer deal we have with our sponsor, Quizalize.com. Now through December 4th, where you can save 80% on a yearly Quizalize premium subscription by entering the code SHIFTINGSCHOOLS, that's all caps, one word, SHIFTINGSCHOOLS at checkout. You heard me right, that's 80% or $14 for the year or $1.17 a month for unlimited classes, activities, exportable data, and of course, all their gamified quizzes. There's never been a deal like this that has given you the power of Quizalize and the engagement of gamification in your classroom. Quizalize games are a catalog of free epic games that overlay against any classic quiz. So you can create a regular quiz like you would anywhere. And then with a click of a couple buttons, your students are taking a quiz with the adventures of Kalo the Koala or slam dunk basketballs. You can even set up team modes where you accommodate up to 10 teams and 100 players. So the whole grade level could have some fun at the same time, giving you the data you want and need to make informed decisions about instruction. All you have to do is go to quizlize.com and sign up for a free And then once you see how easy it is to make your own quizzes or use one of over 1 million resources available to you in Quizalize, you'll want to upgrade before December 4th to get this 80% off deal with the code SHIFTINGSCHOOLS at checkout. A huge thank you to Quizalize for being a sponsor of Shifting Schools and for this amazing deal only available 
to Shifting School listeners. That's Quizalize.com. Fun gamified quizzes for them. Data for you. And now back to our show. Yeah, I, I love that. And, you know, you talked a little bit about the kind of the design thinking uh, methodology to this. I was just wondering, like you said, a project like this takes you, you know, a good year to do. How much of it is actually like how much of that entire year, like how much is actually creating the product? Because I think a lot of times what usually ends up happening in, in classrooms, and this is where I, I give you some time to kind of think about that. Yeah. What I think ends up happening a lot of times in classrooms is we spend we, we try to get to the creative place because we think that takes the most time. Mm. And so we rush the research stage. Like I can only imagine how much time it took you to get in vans, get out of vans, map all that out. And, and I find in schools, a lot of times we rush some of these other stages because we just want to get the kids creating the product. Yeah. So like, if you look at that whole thing, what percentage of the time is actually the create versus the other parts that you need to do to bring something like this together? So I think I could answer that question with like my journalist hat on or with my educator hat on. I think with the journalist hat, I mean, there is not an easy answer to that. Some projects, I, some projects require years of research. I did a story for the New York Times recently about um, uh, the history of bilingual street signage in um, Chinatown. That was a project that took me six years of research because... Wow it involved digging through thousands upon thousands of archival photographs that are only available in one dusty archive in the middle of New York city and talking to people, you know, it's just like the, the sort of requirements of research sometimes spiral into years, right? The production of something usually goes quickly once a publication is signed on. So that can be a much faster process. You can't really rush research. I find with like, mm. if you, if you're looking for a really definitive in-depth product, whereas design can be rushed just because like you can either get super ambitious or less ambitious. You can't like rushing the process of finding an exhaustive truth is not really possible, but rushing the process of designing something beautiful is because beautiful can exist in mm. this level of complexity or this level of complexity. For those who have just who are listening and can't see one hand is far below another hand, but you know, like yeah. <laughs> the level of complexity can be dialed dependent on mm. what your resources or your time are. Research isn't really like that. Um, so to put on like my educator hat, so I teach a class on map making and storytelling, um, to students who have like, they're basically like graduate students. Um, mm -hmm. and what I do with them is I, I try, I, in a single semester, we do a map making project from like conception to, to digital publication. And the way that I do it for them is I'm like, make your story as small as it possibly can be. Right. So I'll have a student who's like, I want to study pedestrian safety and cycling safety in American cities. And I'm like, great. How about one city block in your neighborhood? <laughs> right. You know, so like, yeah, yeah. like choose a topic that you can explore in a single day and exhaustively research in a single day. Right. Mm. So changing the scale of the story that you're working on is what I try to do in my classes, just because you can be exhaustive and rigorous if you change the scale. Right. And so mm. you don't need to worry about, um, you know, rushing the process if you change the scale on which you're working. And so th that's typically what I do with students is it's just about finding, you know, scaling back their ambition with your knowledge of the process to be like, what can we actually get through in a meaningfully, meaningful way? And, you know, it involves a lot of hard, hard conversation with students being like, that's a great idea. That's a master's thesis. That's not something you're going to finish over the <laughs> yeah. course of seven, you know, seven classes. Seven weeks. Yeah. <laughs> I really appreciate that, Aaron. And I, I think that's great advice. And I think we see sort of that, you know, buckets worth of insight coming from, you know, smaller scale research in many ways. I'm thinking of 
like one of my must listen to podcasts is Song Exploder. Mm -hmm. And essentially it's just one artist, one song, not, you know, their whole career, just really digging into one song. So I think that's really great advice for educators and just for all of us personally too, right? Um, Our audience is going to be curious, I think, to be thinking more about what it means to prepare the next generation of interactive journalists. Mm. And um, over there in the show notes, we'll be sure to link in another story. This is actually my favorite from your portfolio. Uh, It's a piece called How Informal Street Vendors Define the Sonic Landscape of Mexico's Capital. Uh, Listeners, you might even just want to pause this episode, go over to the show notes, click that link. It's, it's incredible, Aaron. Like it's just, it, it really is amazing. I've, I've gone back and revisited it several times. So I'm wondering, you know, this is an interactive story you published with a small team. And as you reflect on that, what does it mean for you to be a collaborative storyteller? And what is it that at this point in your career where you have this amazing portfolio, what do you find yourself still needing to learn in order to do that collaborative work? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, thank you so much for your kind words. It is like an incredibly meaningful thing to hear how somebody perceives your work. And that's not something that mm-hmm. often happens. You know, my wife is like, good job. And then we like move on. You know, like the people <laughs> around me have been hearing these, these stories for so long. Yeah. So it's amazing for me personally to hear you talk about the story. It, it means a ton to me. So thank you. Um, I'm going to be glowing for the rest of the day. And <laughs> I would say, you know, there's many questions, I think, in, in what you just asked. I, I One thing that I love about, this is going to get a little inside baseball in the world of journalism, but, you know, one thing that I love about interactive journalism is it really requires a team. And I think mm. there's a common difficulty, I think, in journalism in general, where there's a lot of ego wrapped up in it of like, whose name is on the byline, who broke the story, who's getting the award. And that's something I think that's, it's tough. It, it, I think it encourages a lot of ego uh, building and a lot of competitiveness that is not something that I, I particularly enjoy. And what I love about interactive journalism is the process of making these things just require so many different skills that it's hard. It's, it's almost impossible to do it as a singular person. And so the structure of interactive journalism is has become at the New York Times, at the New Yorker, at um, anywhere that you want to publish, the pudding or, or, or whatever. It's become collaborative by nature because you, you, know, mm. you need someone to do the hard coding to make sure it works on a laptop and it works on a phone and works with the templates of that publication. You need someone who's good enough at design to make it beautiful. You need the reporter. And like, I can do all of those things. I can report, I can code, I can you know, record audio, I can do all those things. But Many of them I do slow. Many of them I do at an amateur level. And so I need those people for their skills, for their speed, for their inspiration. And so I, I wish I could say like, oh, I've learned this, this, and that to become a collaborative journalist. But it's really just like, it's part and parcel of this kind of journalism. You have to work with other people. And and so I think it's just kind of become second nature. I think like, to your question of like, what do you need to become an interactive journalist? Or like, what are the skills that interactive journalists need, you know, in the future, you know, the hard skills are necessary. If you want to be the person coding, right, you need to know the latest JavaScript libraries, and you need to know how to use D3 or, or um, you know, Python to process numbers, all these languages. But by the time students in a classroom graduate and enter the workforce, those things will all be outdated, right. And so I think, mm-hmm 
beyond the hard skills, what you need is like a, like an insatiable appetite for learning new tools that are constantly changing because interactive and web web development in general, but interactive journalism as a subset of that, it just changes so rapidly. The tools that I used when I was learning a decade ago don't even exist today. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I have things that yeah. I built in libraries that are just not serviced anymore. So when I'm teaching students now, I have to spend just as much time researching the new tools as I do teaching it. So like the tools themselves aren't really something to get bogged down on as much as it is like you kind of need the fluency in learning an interactive language, whether that's like a visual interactive language or a coding interactive language. And then I think the core thing that you need is just exercise thinking in a multimedia mindset, right? Like, and mm. I think kids or young people do that much more naturally than, than older folks, because, you know, when I was coming up in, in this world, I mean, you were either a writer or you were a photographer or you were a developer and those those boundaries just don't exist anymore. But the people who are really effective, and I think one thing that makes me effective is an ability to like look at a story and sort of like storyboard conceptually of like, okay, like it's almost like combining uh, like data visualization and like screenplay writing where it's like, mm. what's the introduction that's going to grab someone's attention and what are the visual elements that will, that will create a like context with, a hook and then what's the like bam hit him in the gut visual like surprise and then what's the like version of free exploration you want to go to after that so it, it really feels like storyboarding a movie but the tool sets are different you know you're like is this audio is this text is this a graph what does the graph look like is it the whole graph is it a piece of it and so i i almost feel like narrative production or like visual storyboarding is kind of like the killer skill set to have if you want to do the kind of work that i do that's a long way. I like that. I, I, that idea of exercise thinking in multimedia mindset. I had to write that down real quick because yeah. that gave me chills. Because I just wonder, I wonder, educators listening out there, how often do you put your students in a situation where they have to exercise thinking in a multimedia mindset? You know, I still find that a lot of our school classrooms are not multimedia thinking focused. But we know the internet is going that way. Storytelling is going that way. How do we set up situations in our classroom that support and put students into this? I love the way that you describe that, of just being able to step back and look at things through a multimedia lens, because that is it's, it's a different way of looking at interactivity uh, today that, that we did even 10 years ago. You know, I, I built my first you. website in Dreamweaver. I don't even know if Dreamweaver exists anymore. I haven't done Dreamweaver forever, you know. Yeah, it's all like templates so that you can bootstrap from. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But no, yeah. I think that's a great point. That. I think often in classrooms, it's like, let's make a video or let's do a photo yeah. essay or let's make a podcast. And it's not like, let's look at a story and decide how does this story want to be told with all of the mm. possible mediums that we could use to tell it. And that. what I love about, you know, again, that example, how informal street vendors define the sonic landscape of Mexico's capital, um, you know, listeners, when you check out that example, the use of sound in that piece is so emotional um, and also got me thinking about just that detail of sound in different locations, sound in my neighborhood. And I think it's a, a great exercise for students just to be noticing and appreciating, right? Which talking about social emotional learning, just taking that time, pause, listen, 
What does your neighborhood sound like? What are some mm. of the sounds that if you were going to tell that story and have that audio emotional element, what clips would you need to record? Um, I really, really appreciated that. So thanks so much for, for sharing, Aaron. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you, Aaron. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. Um, other than being, you know, at the New Yorker, the New York Times, American Life, the Atlantic, NPR, everywhere else that you've published, yeah. if educators want to reach out to you, if students want to reach out to you to learn more, uh, where is a good place for them to go? I direct everybody to my Twitter just because that's where I will like push out work that I am publishing and also a place where you can easily get to my website and my contact information. So my handle is my name spelled incorrectly. It's at E-R-I-N-R-E-I-S-S. Um, that's like the most up-to-date version of my work and my contact. So that's where I would send people. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Aaron. Trisha, if people want to reach out to you and, and learn more about the stuff that you're working on, where should they head out to? Well, first of all, it maybe comes to me first because if you look at Aaron's stuff and then you come over to me, it's going to be like, <laughs> don't do it in that order. But uh, I'm on Twitter way too often. You can find me at Trisha, T-R-I-C-I-A underscore Freed, F-R-I-E-D. Um, and of course, our resources all over the place, shiftingschools.com. Jeff, folks want to connect with you, talk more with you. Where should they head? Uh, yeah, you can basically find me everywhere. Same username at Udick. That's J-U-T-E-C-H-T. I've got a good German last name like Aaron as well. So uh, it's well. I am excited. Trish, I haven't even had a chance to tell you this. I was able to get Utech on TikTok now. So I was able to change my TikTok from my full name to just, it only cost me $2.3 million to get it from a kid, <laughs> but I got it. I got it. So no, uh, I, I was able to do that. So now I'm Udick everywhere. So it should make it, it should make it really easy. All right. So we uh, better, well. we better wrap this up so you can go practice your TikTok dance. I know, right? right? I guess, that's right. Yeah, that's it. Aaron, again, thank you so much for taking time. I look forward to uh, your next stories. You talked about, before we started recording, you have a story coming out for the kids section. Do you want to talk about that maybe a little yeah, bit? Yeah, I have a story coming out in the New York Times kids section uh, sometime in the next month or two. I don't get to control the publication, but it's about um, uh, fermented foods from around the world. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's on the theme of rotten. So it's like playing on what is the difference between rotten and fermented and, and, you know, how is that a cultural construct instead of a scientific construct? That is so cool. And when that comes out, we'll make sure to tweet it out as well uh, to to our audience. Uh, That sounds so cool. I'm excited. uh, The difference between fermented and rotten. Uh, That's going to be great. Aaron, thank you so much. Go ahead, Trisha. I was just going to say, like, I'm a huge fan of kimchi. So, Aaron, I'd be hoping for some references of kimchi in that story. For, and for pickle fans of all stripes, there will be something. Yes. Wonderful. Yeah, I love it. I love it. All right. Thanks, Aaron. Appreciate it. Was it was a pleasure. Thank you.